When did shaving get so expensive? Well, luckily, there is Harry's. Harry's starter set is just $15, and that includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. I prefer shave cream because I don't understand how shave gel works. As an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase with my code WT. That stands for What's Tech, but it's a lot shorter, so it'll be easier to remember when you apply the code saving yourself money. It, it makes sense. Anyway, after using the code, you can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just $10. Harrys.com was started by two guys passionate about creating a better shaving experience for all men and women. For a superior shave at an incredible price, go to Harrys.com now, and Harrys will give you that $5 off if you type in the code WT with your first purchase. Again, that's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com and enter my code WT at checkout for $5 off the starter set and start shaving smarter today. Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. And here, you know what? Just because I like you, if you enter code TECH at checkout, you get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Um, Well, so as you know, I live in uh, the Bay Area, um, and it's the kind of the center, really, for the quantified self fad. And uh, I was once meeting with a freelancer. This was about a year ago now, I think. And he was wearing no fewer than three and possibly as many as five uh, devices, like Fitbits and the fuel band and whatever else. You know, he just had them clipped all over his body. He was telling me about how great the quantified self movement was. And I was like, all right, whatever, fine. Yeah, not my not my bag. And uh, and then he very suddenly looked at me and he was like, well, how do you how is your sleep? How do you sleep? And I was like, I, I sleep pretty well. You know, I go to bed at the same time most nights and get up around the same time most days. And, you know, usually get about eight hours in. Like usually I pass out within 30 minutes of lying down. And I've got good sleep hygiene, all of this. He was like, how do you do it? And I was like, well, I looked at all of the. Um, devices he was wearing and I didn't have the heart to tell him that I suspected that just not stressing about whether you know I had taken the perfect number of steps every day and eaten the correct mix of calories and whatever else probably was contributing to the fact that I was relaxed enough to be able to go to sleep. So I think of that every time somebody asks me about the quantified self movement you know this whole idea that like we should be superhuman we should be the best possible humans and it may very well be that being the best possible human doesn't require that kind of technology it's almost as if an entire population of people who are obsessed with min maxing move to one area of the planet and are now trying to apply that logic to their bodies. Yeah, I mean, that is very much what it is. It's not like, you know, we were doing all of these things that that led to the ideal human for the, you know, 200,000 years of Homo sapiens existence, right? We just sort of figured it out and went with the best possible thing that we could and tried not to die. And that, that was the quantified 
you know, I, that's just the self. Is, you know, please don't let me die today. <laughs> let's not, today. Today is a good day to die, but let's not die today. I hope listeners stay tuned because they're about to learn two things in this episode. How not to die tomorrow and what min-maxing means. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to What's Tech, a podcast from TheVerge.com. I am your humble host, Christopher Thomas Plant, and today I am joined by my friend and colleague, Elizabeth Lopato, the science editor at TheVerge.com, um, one of my favorite people to talk to on the show, uh, because, as you could tell from that beginning story, she's like a, a normal person who doesn't seem totally brainwashed by technology. Um, so I'd like to thank you for joining me on this show uh, where we are regularly skeptical. Oh, any, any time. I, I have skepticism to burn. Before we start, I'm going to give a definition of min-maxing. As a video game person, because I realize we threw out a weird term there, min-maxing, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it's uh, putting the minimum effort into getting the maximum return. So if you were... Uh, well, I, I, maybe that's not even true in a role-playing game, but it would be like assigning, knowing exactly how to, like, roll the best character in D&D uh, as early as possible so you could, you could crush the game. Right, and you I would feel be, like, like, minimizing your unimportant traits and maximizing yeah, your desired ones. That's, that is that's exactly that is. correct. Thank you. Anytime. Um, and, and I think that's going to be kind of essential to this discussion because it feels like that is a portion of the quantified self. But before we get to any of that, let's start at the basics. What is the idea of a quantified self? So the quantified self is this movement, and it's composed of a bunch of people who are really obsessed with data. And so essentially what they do is they gather as much information as they can about their own behavior, usually via gadgets, so that they can optimize their performance. They track things like physical activity, calories, mood, sleep, blood oxygen levels, performance. And, you know, that, that performance could be mental performance, could be physical performance, whatever it is. Um, but essentially they're looking to quantify as much as they can their experience and then maximize their effectiveness, whatever so, that means. So who, who coined the term and why? So the idea itself isn't that new and was in fact generated, I think, in the 1970s, but the term itself was coined um, by Wired Magazine editors Gary Wolf and Kevin Kelly, who I guess realized they were onto something because they aren't journalists anymore. They have a company called the Quantified Self Labs that's meant to capitalize on the movement. So I guess you really have the media to blame for this. <laughs> oh, God. <that's> Wired. <laughs> um, yeah. And so essentially it's like uh, a kind of an extension of the metrics that high-level athletes use to measure their performance with some other random stuff being monitored for good measure. So what are some of the pieces of technology from the movement that the average person would be familiar with? Oh, gosh. Uh, the Excel spreadsheet. That's a big one. Wait, what? The Excel spreadsheet. You have to put your data somewhere. <sighs> um, and so if you're tracking your data and you want to make nice charts about how effective you've been, the Excel spreadsheet is a major one. You know, This and explains like, why I hate this movement. It's, <laughs> it's all coming together. So, like, you know, if you were to weigh yourself every day, you would enter your weight into your Excel spreadsheet, <gasps> and there you would be. Oh, so, my God. Yeah, so that's a big one. Uh, but beyond that, it's usually, you know, sort of your fitness fad gadgetry. You've got your Fitbit, any kind of GPS tracker, apps for tracking calories and runs, that kind of thing. Anything that's that's going to measure what it is you, you want to be measuring. So maybe 
Uh, you have an app where you sleep with your phone under your pillow, and um, that tells you how good your sleep cycle is, even though it doesn't really tell you how good your sleep cycle is. That's a whole other thing we'll get into in a minute. But all of these sort of like gadgets. So the people who tend to be interested in QS tend to also be sort of gadget-oriented. Okay. You hit on something right there. You put a phone under your pillow, and it's going to tell you how it... None of that sounds real. How, how, how accurate is any of this technology? Slash, is it approved by federal organizations? <laughs> well. That laugh tells me a lot. Uh, so these gadgets are generally classed as what's called wellness devices. Um, and the FDA came out earlier this year with some draft guidance saying that they're not planning to regulate them, provided that they do not make health claims. So as long as your Fitbit isn't saying something like it will help you lose weight, the FDA doesn't really care about whether it's accurate or not and is not verifying it. It'll just show you a lot of thin people running around with <laughs> Fitbits on. Right, exactly. Um, and like, you know, their calorie counting is pretty common. Um, that in and of itself is, is pretty inaccurate and not super useful for reasons that we've been writing about for now almost two years on the verge. Uh, the medical community has actually moved away from calorie counting. Um, and with fitness trackers, the devices vary, but about a year ago, the Berkeley Science Review suggested that while the Fitbit might be pretty accurate for steps, it's not gonna really tell you how much distance is traveled and the faster you walk, the more inaccurate your data will be. Uh, earlier this year, the Journal of the American Medical Association suggested that smartphone apps were at least as effective for tracking physical activity as a lot of these gadgets were in terms of step counts. But how step counts translate into actual overall activity levels or wellness is sort of an open question. So I, I, it seems, in theory, good and bad because, okay, we have a ton of data. And for the individual person putting this in their Excel sheet, I, I, I hope that it's bringing them solace and joy. <laughs> um, but... If it were correct, for the, the scientific community at large, I could see how that's tremendously valuable. Is that actually the case, or because it's so not, I guess, inaccurate, does it kind of lose its purpose? Oh, God. Well, this, these, this data, I think, probably is not useful to most researchers. Uh, part of it is that you're dealing with a, a group of people who are essentially the worried well. Like, there's not necessarily anything wrong with them. So you know, you're maybe getting a baseline reading, right? But then you need to have more than one person using the same kind of setup um, across the board in order to make sure that the methodology makes sense. And so the methodology across a group of QS devotees totally varies depending on what each per individual person wants. Like the, the collection just isn't going to be really useful. Um, particularly because, you know, you have no real oversight for methodology. You have no way of making sure that there's, you know, not some kind of system gaming going on. Like, there's just, it's, it's basically crap. It's not that useful. I just want you to know that you said QS devotees, and I jumped off a cliff, and I am gone, <laughs> and now my ghost is hosting the rest of the podcast. Um, so if it sounds different, more, more ghoulish, um, now you know why. Um, okay, so I'm being, I'm being positive. I'm... I'm, my ghost is committing to the quantified self lifestyle or death style. Uh, what, what could I gain from this? Like being very optimistic about all of it. Well, it could be a fun hobby for you. I mean, some people collect stamps, right? God. No, I mean, like that, that like to me is like the big upside. Because the thing is, like even Olympic level athletes don't do this when they're not getting ready for major, you know, performances. It's just not necessary. 
Um, and I see people obsessed about the perfect fuel for their bodies and their perfect sleep and all of this, and all I see is stress. Like, you know when you're hungry, you know what you're hungry for, you know what you've been eating, you know when you need to move your body because you're, like, a little stiff. You know what kind of movement feels good. There's just this, like, the idea that you have to be functioning perfectly is sort of embedded in the, the QS ethos that you could you could be better you could be a better specimen and like why not just be a good specimen and do other things with your life like spend time with your family and listen <laughs> well, to music this so, is kind of taking a sidetrack but uh, scientifically how dangerous is stress um stress plays a role in a lot of diseases actually um it compromises the immune system it raises levels of inflammation uh, people who are in high stress position, and, and the, the thing about stress though is that it's weird, right? Because if you're in a high stress position, but you have some kind of control, like you're the CEO of a company and you're under a lot of stress, you are better off than somebody who is in a high stress position, but doesn't have a lot of control. Like if you're one of the CEO's workers, for instance. So stress sort of, you know, is, is a complicated phenomenon. Um, but to me, the thing that's, the thing that, 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 that the whole QS thing like makes me anxious about is that it in some ways really mimics um, the obsessive tracking and control that goes on with eating disorders. Um, and in some sense, I guess people with eating disorders are the original quantified self folks. They're the ones who are you know most invested in calories in, calories out. Um, but the thing is, you know, even over, even, even, the methodology doesn't necessarily work for everyone. Like I think Paul Ford wrote earlier this year about how he had been tracking his weight in an Excel spreadsheet as a way of losing weight and it helped him to lose weight until it didn't. Like at some point it just stopped being a useful tool for him. And like there's really no data that suggests that QS does anything for the person who is participating whatsoever. Like that's, that's, <laughs> that's what kills me, right? Like the most egregious thing I've heard of are these people who get blood tests. They're perfectly well. And anytime you get a test done, a blood test done, there's a possibility you're getting a wrong reading and that, you know, you've put yourself in, in the line of fire for making medical decisions that are unnecessary. So these people are doing this, like they're putting themselves at risk of this. Uh, not not like because their doctors have ordered a, a test, but just because they, they want to know what their levels of C-reactive protein or testosterone or whatever is. And in the case of like C-reactive protein, for example, we know that higher levels correlate with inflammation and play a role in heart disease. But we don't have data that says lowering levels of C-reactive protein before heart disease develops will stop it from developing. And so these people are proceeding, assuming that like, oh, well, I have a high level of C-reactive protein, so I'd better lower that and then I won't get heart disease. Like, there's no data for that. That, that, that may not even be true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so you're, you're doing all of this unnecessary labor, maybe for nothing. I, I like, think... Yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. I mean, it's one of the reasons why, you know, in medicine, the, 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 the gold standard is the double-blind placebo-controlled trial. And this is not that by any stretch of the imagination. Like, it is to that as a toy t-ball set for your Barbie dream house is to the SF Giants. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to explain my anxiety uh, about quantified self. I think in, 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 in hearing you uh, talk through it, and this is not scientific at all. So this is kind of, I guess, the, the flip side uh, of also being kind of baseless. But what, what doesn't work about it for me, and this is as somebody in no shame in this, but as somebody who had an eating disorder as a young man and knowing how, uh, how data focused it can make you, 
that the thing that helped me was this idea, and it's very hippie, but of like listening to your body mm-hmm. and like really, like literally stopping what you're doing and kind of like trying to have a conversation with your body. And when I think about that, and I think about how complex the human body is, it is literally a conversation versus uh, blunt data. Yeah. And data seems so, that seems like trying to reduce like a a graphing calculator to like the use of just the addition sign. (laughs) Like it it just seems so much like such a smaller blunt portion of what your body is trying to communicate to you. Um, you know, versus just what's on a spreadsheet. Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of it, too. And also, I would say that, and this is this is something you see across the sciences that many scientists, especially psychologists, are really aware of. The things that you can measure are not necessarily the things that matter. There might be things out there that are important, but you can't get at them because you haven't figured out how to measure them yet, right? So, like, Again, to, to, to talk about, you know, your body and your needs and, like, listening to your body and connecting with yourself rather than participating in essentially what is surveillance, because that's what the quantified self is. It is self-surveillance. Um, you know, for me, I know, like, because I spend all day at home alone with a cat, right? And I am a social animal, as are all humans. We, like, literally need to interact with other people because if we don't, it's torture for us. That's why solitary confinement is torture. And, like, I sometimes will come to the end of the day and realize I have not spoken to a person, you know, in, in real life all day. And thankfully, I have a bunch of friends in my neighborhood who are willing to like, get a, like, sort of panicky phone call from me. Like, I haven't spoken to another person today. Can we please go get a beer? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but, like, there are things like that, like, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I often crave specific foods. Like, if I haven't had greens in a while, I'll discover that I'm really craving a salad. Um, or if I haven't had a chance to move as much as I'm used to, I discover that I want, instead of, you know, to take my lunch break buying lunch, I just want to go for a walk. Like, there are all of these sort of conversations you have with yourself at all times. Uh, this kind of self-awareness that you're talking about um, that I think the quantified self... Maybe it exists for people who haven't developed that kind of self-awareness, or maybe it exists to replace it. But I don't know that we have necessarily figured out everything that is important for optimal... I, like, I hate to even say optimal human functioning, because it's more like human flourishing, like not to get all Aristotelian on you or anything. But, you know, like the things that make me feel like my best self um, are things like you know, going out and and enjoying a concert or taking a nice walk in the woods or spending time with people I love. Um, And, you know, obviously taking care of myself, eating well, um, exercising, those things are important too. But in terms of wellness, there's a much broader range of things that really contribute to that. And not all of those things are amenable to tracking. Yeah, I think that's, that's, again, my issue with like looking at this as min-maxing is... In a, in a game, min-maxing leads to grinds where you find uh, ideal solutions and you repeat them over and over and over again. And when you talk about, hey, I, I get that I am craving greens or I get that I don't need lunch today. I can go for a walk or the opposite. Maybe I need to have a, a larger breakfast than normal. Mm-hmm. It feels like that's divergent from this idea of okay, this is the system that works. This is how I hit, if I take this path to work, I'm always going to hit this number of steps, which is my goal. And I can keep my calories low by having this breakfast uh, day in and day out. 
Uh, right. And then you're sacrificing your human interest in novelty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, like, there's no way there's no way to optimize for one thing without sacrificing something else. And I think that's sometimes something people forget. You mentioned the idea of surveillance. And I want to I want to hit that before we wrap up, um, because while this data might not be as useful as we think for ourselves, uh, it, it might be useful <laughs> for other people. Uh, in what ways is that happening or is that a threat of happening? Um, this is in fact already happening. Uh. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know that people necessarily have been following this case very closely, but Fitbit data has been, um, has been tapped into by law enforcement in a couple of cases, I think one most notably in Canada, uh, to see you know, what, where somebody was and what they were doing at the time of a crime. So there's that. Uh, maybe don't commit crimes with your Fitbit on. It's a thought. Um, and then, you know, a lot of your, the things that are easiest to identify you by are your health information. So that's stuff like your DNA, um, you know, your genes, and then also your patterns. Um, there's been a lot of stuff mostly done with cell phones uh, rather than with these sort of newer uh, activity devices but that show that most people take the same routes. You can sort of figure out based on the data who's who and what they're up to and what their habits are. And then you can sort of plan around that, which is ideal, for instance, if you are an advertiser who is hoping to reach a group of people who are the worried well and clearly have money to burn. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to finish, we're, we're, going, to, we're going back to optimist mode. Mm -hmm. um, say... We, the quantified self is going to take off no matter what. Uh, what would you most like to see the movement look like in, say, like 10 or 15 years, if that's well, the case? I would like to see a really honest accounting of where the movement comes from and what its limitations are, because I don't see that ever. Um, and, you know, it's sort of related to transhumanism in the sense that, and this is just, this is my personal point of view being around these people living in, you know, California. But it seems to come from just a fear of death, and it seems to be centered in people who are usually rich, white, and men, okay? And these are people who can control almost everything about their lives, almost everything about their environment. You know, they can get their Uber, and they can order their food from an app, and everything they could possibly want can come to them, and they, all of their desires are fulfilled, and there's nothing in their lives they can't control except the inevitability of death. And so this and transhumanism are in some ways a sort of response to that, right? Like, you know, it, you're, you're like, well, if I make myself optimally healthy for 30 years, and again, there's no data that shows that this will work, <laughs> you know, <laughs> then, but we'll, we'll pretend that, you know, we'll pretend that this is a real thing. And there are always buses, you know, right. going across the street. Right, know, right, right. All it takes is exactly. one step. There, I mean, there's always the possibility that you just, you know, you, you get hit by a car and die. That, yeah. that is totally a possibility with your perfect transhumanist body or whatever. But, um, you know, it's, it's essentially, I think, a response to the, the aging and death, the decay that comes for us all. And these are folks who are able to control just about everything else in their lives, right? Um, except this, this one thing the fact that they're going to die, the fact that they are aging, the fact that their bodies are breaking down. And I think that in, if you really wanted quantified self to grow up, to be something that is a little bit, something that I wouldn't be quite so dismissive of, maybe let's put it that way, 
um, you would have to deal with the fact that there are a lot of things that are important for human, human well-being, human flourishing, that aren't going to be captured by it. You would have to deal with the fact that, you know, <laughs> a lot of what it's premised on may not actually be scientifically accurate or even a good way to live. And you would have to think very seriously about what the actual problem that it's addressing is, which is the inevitability of your own death, um, which is maybe better done with uh, any, anything from a book to a shrink to quality time spent with philosophy to just simply enjoying the simple pleasures of living and you know smelling the flowers more often. I don't know what it is. But to me, like that's the best possible outcome is that people realize that what they're dealing with here is just essentially their own fear of their body's inevitable decay and address that in a relatively straightforward fashion. Well, I'm just glad that we ended on that optimistic note. Uh, <laughs> Death comes I, I, for us all. <laughs> Enjoy um, your day. <laughs> thank you so much for coming and, and being on the guest on the show. You're always welcome, especially when we, when we reach these conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of What's Tech. We are here every Tuesday on The Verge. And you can also find us on iTunes where I would love for you to leave a review. Uh, here's, here's something new. Leave a review and uh, explain why you are afraid of your own body's decay. Uh, that'll be just a special treat between you and, and me and anybody else who happens to be looking at reviews <laughs> of this podcast. I love it. Leave a five-star <laughs> review and tell us why you're afraid to die. God. Um, <laughs> uh, where, where can they find you on Twitter? I'm Ms. Lopato, M.S. Lopato. Yeah. You can find us also on Twitter at What's Tech, and you can find both of us on TheVerge.com. Until next time, we'll see you later. Bye.